Dang it. Huh. Maybe that's what the problem That's, you know. Hmm. That's bad. He'll make me cuter. I'm the black man, black man, I'm sorry. I'm the black man, black man, I'm sorry. I'm the black man, black man, I'm sorry. I'm the black man, I'm black man. Wait, do I? Do I get it? Do I get a different intro? Hey, welcome to another episode of Black Men Do Talk, where you hear about overdue topics from black man's perspective. I'm one of your hosts, Street Hymns. Hi, I'm Trey. Caleb Berry. And joining us today as a special co-host, we got Nick Kennedy. He's a white man, white man, white man. <laughs> I need a new intro. Can you record me a new intro, Street? Yeah, that intro does kind of box him in. No, okay. It boxes so us in. We, we're going to be able to talk to anybody from a black male's perspective. So, like, you know That's what I'm saying? That. All topics, all conversations, and it's just like, yo, this is our response to what's going on in the world. You feel me? But, it, but maybe at the end it should be like, I'm a black man, I'm a black man, and Nick. <laughs> It's just feel like fill in the blank. I'll freestyle and that Mark. Part of it. <laughs> and Mark. That's what I was thinking. And Mark. And Mark. Every Mexican family. It's Mark. Mark. That's funny. I. You didn't. You never seen that one. I don't know the. Dang, joke. bro. We gotta put you on. He's seen it. I've He's seen. seen. What? Do, what do you say? Like you're surprised I've seen it. No, like, what is that supposed to? Is mean? this an okay, office reference? Wow. Well. <laughs> I don't think you have to take I, it there. I, I told you, I, I speak in office references. <laughs> he said, he looked at me and said, he's coming. seen it. That's how bad it is, man. Wow. The attacks are wow. here. Yeah, here we go. Do y'all well. know what he's talking about? And Mark? Oh, come on. No social media gurus really? in here, huh? Man. Man, okay. My name is Jeff. All right, well, so today's topic yeah. is <laughs> risk-taking. And I feel like we have an expert on what it means to be a risk taker. Yeah. Um, Mr. Nick Kennedy, if you could tell us about yourself. Be happy to. So, uh, man, I'm uh, 44 years old from Dallas, Texas, and uh, spent a bunch of time up in Colorado, married for 24 years, three kids, and I'm a serial entrepreneur. So I've built and sold a couple different businesses. Nice. And uh, about a month ago, released a book called The Good Entrepreneur which is my story of how I've uh, built businesses and how great entrepreneurship is. So entrepreneurship is a, is the word is the French word. It means uh, the bearer of risk. So anybody who's mm. bearing risk is an entrepreneur. Go oh, there you go. I didn't know that. Shouts out to you. What's up, man? I'm here for this. Isn't that oh, cool? oh, oh, we I really learn didn't know that. that. I've never sure. heard that before. Isn't that cool? And, and so, so like we think entrepreneurs are a small subset of the population, but the reality is everybody's in some respects bearing risk. Yeah. And risk is where growth comes from. Like we are constantly balanced between this chaos and order world, right? Where we want to live in order and peace and safety, but growth doesn't come from order. It comes from chaos. Yeah. So when you go build a business, you're effectively saying, I'm going to go do something no one else has ever done before. Mm-hmm. My last business was an airline. So I built, built, started and grew and sold an airline and you go and build these businesses and you go, man, I wonder if I can go do this. And that's, a ton of risk, but there's also a lot of upside reward on that as well. Okay, you just talked in a world and and like phrasing that is foreign to our ears. You built an airline. Well, I had a great team that did, but I I was one of, I was the founder of it and CEO of it and built an airline. Yeah, what kind of airline was this? <clears throat> we used private planes flying throughout Texas, and so uh, I had accumulated two million miles on American Airlines over the course of a decade. And uh, met a met a billionaire who had a private plane, and I got to ride on his private plane. And I thought this was that's that's the way to go. And 
So I looked at buying a private plane, but they're really expensive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I thought, I, got, I bet there'd be a lot of people around that would like to share in a private plane. And so the time Uber and Lyft and everything were growing. And, uh, man, we, we went out and built this platform that allowed us to get private planes and members and fly people around. We flew several hundred thousand people uh, in the time that I ran it and ended up selling the business. And the idea was 10 times better than first class, but you're sharing the plane so it doesn't cost 10 times as much like a private plane does. Exactly. And it's crazy because during that time, I think it was 2007 or 2017, was it? Uh, yeah, it's 2012 to 17, yeah. Okay, like, this is before subscriptions were really, like, taken off as, like, the, the standard for all businesses. So where did you get the concept for, like, yo, let's make this subscription-based? Well, so the business before this I was part of was an oncology decision support company. And we, I had, I'd been involved in a software company where you would go sell software. And every time you sold software, it was, it was great. You'd high-five each other. But, man, you had to go back in the next month, do that plus 10% more, right? It was all, you could never catch up. And the bigger you got, the harder it became. So when we did this oncology business, we created this thing called PMPM, which is well, what insurance does. It's called per member per month. So instead of saying half a million for software, we're going to charge you 20 cents per member per month. Mm. So it's like mailbox money. So whether they use it or not, you got, got, some coming you got to see it. So, uh, you know, in, wow. in the startup world, which is what I've lived in, you make so many mistakes and cash is oxygen, right? And if you, if you run out of it, you're dead. Your business is dead. And so I was really focused on how do I cover up from all the the multitude of mistakes and sins I'm going to make in my business. Mm -hmm. And we created these subscription models and, and, and that allowed us to have recurring revenue coming in, which turns out to be, you know, right now in the, in the marketplace, the SaaS base, if like SaaS based software as a service subscription based model, you, you see it everywhere, right? What from Spotify to Mm -hmm. whatever, wherever it is, Uber Eats is trying to get you to do this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. When you look at a multiple of evaluation of those businesses, if, if they're going to give you a, call it a, um, a, a 6X on, a, on an EBITDA, on a cash percentage basis on a, on a normal software business, you might get 25 to 30X if it's recurring revenue because you've effectively built in. So that means, you know, you have a business that might be worth 50 million. Man, that could be worth 500 million because it's that built-in revenue and that's what everybody wants. Oh yeah, you talking right now. So, in your book, you um talked about something I thought was super dope. Um You read it? Yeah. My man. Absolutely, man. You read? <laughs> oh, ho, oh, bro. Dang. Whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all. Dang. Secondly, to be fair, you did walk into that. I I read more than manga. So That is true. Yeah, sometimes. I'm not really a reader. Like, it, like essentially, I'm not a reader. You're but a studier. Yeah, you are a yeah, studier. Yeah, studier I'm a studier. A yeah. like, I'm, I'm a knowledge hoard. So, yeah. like, I just love, like, knowledge from different places and different people and different perspectives. And so, like, I'll dibble-dabble here and there. Mm-hmm. But if I'm interested in something, I will deep dive into it. You know what I'm saying? So, I was interested in this book because Nick is my mentor at this moment. So, it's like, you know what I'm saying? Like, getting to know you. Forever, man. Once a mentor, always a mentor. Here we go. Okay, bet, man. I'm like, don't leave me. <laughs> nah. So, um, but in the book, right? So, uh, I remember my homie Grant uh, spoke, and he quoted this. Well, he essentially said, a lot of times our passions start with a frustration. And so, in the book, he talked about how in your upbringing, seeing the contrast of being in jail and visiting your father yeah. fueled your passion for, okay, this is a place that lacks respect. Yeah. This is a place that um, lacks etiquette. 
And so that fueled a desire for you to build yeah. a system that had the exact opposite. So like, can you speak on yeah, I'd be happy to. having your so, frustrations feel your passion? So what streets what Mitchell, what are we going by street or Mitchell on this one? They call me street. <laughs> what street's talking about my, when I was, so I grew up upper middle class when I was, when I was 16, my dad was sentenced to uh, 20 years in prison. And so I went from this upper middle class life to helping my mom pay rent. And I have an older brother who's um, got some mental disabilities and helping, helping the family. And so I went from this like really comfortable level to uh, really hustling. And um, it turns out that's actually a really good skill to be as an entrepreneur, but it's a really bad skill to have as a, uh, as a human being. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, my experience is I've spent hundreds of hours in a prison visiting room visiting my father and I spent hundreds of hours in private planes. And, and I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that the difference between the two is like four or five decisions. And, and, and the reality is you can be completely in prison in a private plane and completely free in prison. Bang, bang, bang. So, so we're chasing these symbols of power, the private plane, the cars, the, the, the vacation homes or whatever it might be. And the reality is you, you sacrifice a lot to go get there. So what I had to recognize, so, so the, my book is, spoiler alert, like it's 10 chapters of how, go to, how to go build an airline. And the la- chapters 11 and 12 is me going through Celebrate Recovery, right, which is a 12-step program. It's not specifically for alcohol or drugs, but just sin in general. My favorite sin is pride. Mm-hmm. Recognizing, I was a Christian going to church the whole time, tithing, doing the whole nine yards, but like recognizing that there is a God and I'm not him. Mm-hmm. And when you build an airline, you start to wonder, <laughs> You know, and, and, you know, my marriage was in a bad place and I went through celibate recovery and I had a guy named Richard Hoffman who I write about in the book who's since passed away. And he was one of these guys who just didn't care about what you thought about him. And about three months after I met him, uh, he was diagnosed with, with pancreatic cancer, which is a death sentence if you get uh, pancreatic cancer. And he really didn't care what I thought about him at that point. And man, he punched me in the nose a few times, metaphorically speaking, and told me things about myself. I was ugly things about myself that were true. And the Holy Spirit softened my heart in such a way that I could hear it at that time. Wow. And, and so, so, you know, the whole process of being in prison visiting cell, being in private jets, kind of seeing, you can't find two more extreme places on the face of the earth, in my opinion. And they're really, really close together. And that's, that's kind of been a journey I've been on with regards to entrepreneurship. And I think entrepreneurship is the, here's why I'm so excited about it and passionate about it. In my opinion, it's not easy, but in my opinion, it is the most efficient way to move from the life that you were given to the life that you want. Right. If you get on the track of, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to get my 3% raise and I'm going to put my money away in my 401k, blah, blah. Like, that's fine. That's great. A lot of people want to go do that, but you're not going to move up in, 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 a lot of different ways until you take a big risk risk. And what's cool is I had nothing to lose. Yeah. So when you have nothing to lose, you have everything to gain. And so entrepreneurship becomes this magic carpet ride where you can, you can bet it all, man. And you can say, I got this idea and nine out of 10 fail. But when they do hit, they hit big and they change your life forever. Generationally, they change your life. And so, you know, I can also, but I also recognize it's really unhealthy to go do what I did and, and, and with regards to relationships with my God, with my wife, with my children, with my friends, my family. So the question of being a good entrepreneur is how do you, how do you kill it? How do you be a great entrepreneur, incredibly successful? But that's just the bottom line. Like making money is just, that's just the bare minimum. 
it's it's never less than profits, but it's so much more. So what do you do with the power you've accumulated, the the resources you've accumulated, and how do you go use that to help other people as you as you go about your life? I got a quick question because something you brought up earlier, um, which you said was good, but how what does it look like um, to take risk with a we? Because earlier you were talking about we did this, we did this. What does that look like to bring other people into this risk area? <laughs> well, so in context of my marriage, uh, my wife is very risk averse. Mm-hmm. And so it is an ongoing, we call them, uh, we call them family devotionals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, it starts out with, Hey baby, I got an idea. Risk-averse. Let me Warning! make, <laughs> Warning. Exactly. Warning. Hey, Hey baby, I got an idea. Let me make you a margarita and let's talk about this. <laughs> And I've become a little bit, I've become a little bit better of it or at it over the years, but Mm -hmm. we, but, but here's what she says about me. I I used to say I'm the balloon and she's the pin. She pops my balloon. Right. And what she says, which is actually true is I'm the balloon and she's the string that holds me down. And the reality is if I wasn't married to my wife, who's risk averse and, and, and she didn't step up when she did, I would not be married. My, my kids, my kid wouldn't have been here tonight. I would have had a lot of broken relationships and I would be a lot worse off. And so there's that balance. And I think this is what's beautiful about marriage with regards to the we is, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about this idea that, you know, what, what, if you're living together, why should I get married? Just a piece of paper, right? Mm-hmm. And I say that's, that's complete bunk. And I'll tell you why. When you're in a marriage, it's a sacred commitment that you make before God. And when you're in that cauldron together, you're forcing each other to become better versions of yourselves. And our spouses are, are and should be our worst tormentors because they know who we are and they refuse to let us stay that way. And if I'm pissed, can I cuss on here? Can I say p- get pissed? You actually can't. We're a strictly Christian hey, podcast. And so um, we're actually going to have to edit that part out. And so hey, yeah. Hell no, I just want to let you know we appreciate what you said thus The far. amount of times you said the N-word last episode, <laughs> you were stopping us when he said hold pissed. On, hold on, my nigga. I got something whoa, to whoa. say. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, so with regards to we, that's that. And then when you think about we with regards to your business, right? Mm-hmm. You can't do it by yourself. For sure. Yeah. You got to bring people around you. And, and, and that's the big we. And I think that everything starts with why do you exist? Mm-hmm. We existed. Our business existed not to give people access to private planes. We existed for one reason, one reason alone. It was first and foremost to take care of our employees. And our vision was to every time a member interacted with us, we'd give them back time in their life because time is the most valuable commodity in the world. So my heart, my dad being gone out of my life for two decades, I was growing in such a way with all the miles I flew on American, 2 million miles in in, in 10 years on American Airlines. That's a lot of miles. It's a lot. It's going to be So... Say what you gonna say. I have questions. Where were you going? <laughs> what were you doing? So, but but Went but for France for lunch. Like think about like, like you know the time you know that you know that song. No, you don't. No, it was all domestic. I mean, this was crazy. I was on the plane all the time. I was driven. Right. I yeah. I didn't have a life I wanted, and I was gonna go. I was gonna sacrifice almost everything to go get it. On average, how many flights were you taking the year? I mean, I was every other week. I was on a plane. It was twenty, thirty. Okay, 40 so flights so a year. It seems as though there's a. There's a fine line between taking risks and making dumb decisions. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can see that. Yeah, it's a 
Yeah. It is. It is a fine line between between the two of them. And this is where you've got to risk adjust accordingly. I mean, this is how I think you build a business. I think you set a standard. You, you have a, a long-term goal and you create a short-term goal and you go, look, so here's how I do it, right? If I have a new idea, I've got three or four buddies that I get together and we get a bottle of whiskey and we talk about it. And if it, and nine times out of 10, they shut it down. But if it makes it outside of there, then I go and say, who do you know in the industry of what I'm trying to go into? Mm-hmm. And I start to meet people in the industry. And, and you start to ask questions, right? So when I was starting the airline, I was calling people who flew planes. I didn't, I don't even like planes. I just, I don't know how they fly. It's like magic, you know? And I figured out if you get anything going fast enough, it'll fly, right? Basically. And that's what a plane is. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and so you start to ask people and, you know, most of them tell you you're crazy, but a couple go, Hey, if you could figure this out, it might be kind of cool. And so you set these goals of, if I can make it out of the whiskey night, we call it no, no nights. And basically we create these nights where you're not allowed to say the word no. Like we want to be optimistic this night instead of shutting it down. If you say the word no, you got to take a shot. So it kind of gets ugly, but no good ideas. When's the next one? <laughs> come, come out of that. And you go talk to industry people and you, so, so that's the first step. And then you go to the next one yeah. and then you go, Hey, I got a friend of mine. So, <laughs> so, so then you, here's the real treat is it, can you go raise money and do this? So I got a, I got a, a friend of mine who's a, who's an incredibly wealthy man. He's a multi-billionaire and he was raising money one time. And I said, Hey, why are you not raising, why are you not just sending, using your own money? And he said, Nick, everybody around me is a yes man or yes woman. They will not tell me I've got a bad idea until I ask them for their money. Cause man loves money more than anything else. So only after they wire the money, do they, do they, do you know, they actually believe in you, right? So you set these little steps and if you cross them, you keep going and that's how you do it. And then pretty soon it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you have like real risk. But by that time you've already crossed three or four or five steps. Mm-hmm. You got your friends on board, the industry people on board, money on board, right? You got clients, you got revenue coming in and now you, now it's a whole different world. Now you're, you're at a survival. Now you're going to optimize. Yeah. And now you, now you're just trying to maximize the revenue you got. Make sure you got the right culture. Make sure there's right market fit. You're acquiring customers cheaper than you know what you're keeping for, et cetera. Does that answer your question about we? Mm-hmm. No, that was good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah. indeed. Um, kind of what we talked about last night. It was kind of uh, interesting. So I'm getting this from First uh, Samuel 23, right? It's the story where David is inquiring to the Lord, like, hey. This city named uh, Kyla had just been attacked by the Philistines. He goes to Kyla like, Lord, can I go down here and, and defeat the Philistines? Lord's like, yes, he defeats the Philistines. Afterwards, Saul is like, yo, he's in Kyla right now, a city with gates. All we got to do is pull up on him, surround him, and he can't go nowhere. He quotes, God has given David into my hands. And so David then asked the Lord, Will Saul come down to Kyla? The Lord says, yes. He says, will the people of Kyla surrender me over to Saul? The Lord says, yes. So David dips out. Here is an instance where God foreknew something that did not happen. So foreknowledge does not institute predestination. Therefore, just because God may know something may happen, it's a possibility, but it is on man's decisions on what is going on in the now, just because God, would know, God knows what's going to happen in the future. 
I say this to say, God took a risk in making mankind. How is this? Well, it wasn't a risk like he could be harmed, but he could be grieved. He could be mourned. He could be saddened. He could be angry. Based on the possibility of our decisions. So, essentially, God is really the first good entrepreneur. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That was quite the circle. I wow. worked on it in the car. I like, bet you did. <laughs> that's not something you can do off the top of your head, sir. Hey, that's not rapper stuff, bro. We're going to work on this in the car bang, before we get there. Bang, bang, <laughs> Hey, why, why, why for how come? Y'all got to come after me when I say so good. You know why. <laughs> Indeed. I'm here for it. What what would be some like uh, things that didn't end in su- success that kind of spurred you along, like mess ups? Well, so I, I mean, uh, lots of things along the way, right? So there's there's it's not linear. Mm-hmm. It's not like you've got success, success, success. I mean, you've got success, you've sure. got failure, you've got success, you've got failure. So man, I mean, you could look at strategic decisions around software. You could look around strategic decisions around how much money you spend on marketing. Mm-hmm. Hiring people like at the end of the day, uh, you know, the goal in life is when you when you when you're building a business, hire slowly, fire, fire quickly. Mm-hmm. We've okay. got the past going on. Hire here. slowly, fire quickly. Yeah. So so this is a if you've got employees, I've ne- not once have I ever met somebody who wished they had spent one day longer with an employee they knew they should have fired. Hmm. Wow. So. The moment you know you should get rid of somebody, it's time to go. Like, don't wait on it. It takes a long time. But, you know, back to mistakes, I, I um, look, I'm prone to, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I like experiences, so I'm quick to be in the moment and, and go do things. And um, the, I've got a lot of good friends around me that will, will, <laughs> will ask me to, you know, slow down a little bit as we, as we get going. So um, I'll think of something specific. I don't know what to tell you after that. Because so, and, and this is another thing I was thinking about too. Like, how do you allow the failures and mess up to spur you on? Because I think a lot of times when we get into these spaces, we take risks. We're like, oh, we get excited for it, then it doesn't work out, and then it's like, I don't think I want to do this again. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do we allow? <clears throat> so this is where I talk about not being a healthy human, but a good entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Like, not that book title, good entrepreneur, but like successful entrepreneur. Yeah. There was an incredibly uh, so I I remember I remember as clear as day I was sixteen years old and there was a kid after football practice in the locker room we got into a fight about something I said words he said words we went back and forth a few times and I thought I'd ended it and he ended with yeah well at least when I go home tonight my dad will be there your dad's not gonna be there for twenty years and it was at this time where I was like bing bing oh ho oh, brother oh whoa, whoa. <laughs> what a bing ball because he get bing ball bing bing <laughs> Yo, that's crazy. Well, but you know, but it was at this time where it's like, I wondered what people were saying behind my back. No one said it to my face. This is the first time I'd ever said because the emotions had boiled over. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize at the time, but you know, there's certain words that people will say to you that you'll just ingest and they become your new identity. Mm-hmm. And, and I ingested that as my new identity. And I didn't realize it then. I didn't realize it till I go into celebrate recovery, but I went two decades of, I'm never going to be anything more than a prisoner's kid. Like this is my identity. Two decades. Two decades. Which is how long he was in there. Yeah. And, and, and post that, right? It was like, I had this chip on my shoulder. I, I'd never talked about, I mean, it was like literally five years ago, if you knew me, you'd never know anything about my dad. 
because I it was just never going to come up. I was going to build a trophy room so grand that we'd be busy talking about it, and we would never get to what is this deep, most endearing part of me, right? Which is the part that that I should be showing to be vulnerable about. And in doing that, you you create this pattern upon pattern upon pattern. But I had this long term view of I never want anybody to say you're not you, you know you're anything but the best. Yeah. I mean, I don't even like, and I'm, I joke about it, but I'm serious. I don't even like planes. Like looking back at it, like it was a big part of my ego, which is like, I wonder if I'm going to build an airline. Like, let's go do it. I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I'm like, oh man, that was like, what's the most audacious thing I can do that will then grant me the opposite of what I'm fearful of? Mm-hmm. You okay. know, you know what I mean? So, so now after the airline, like, what do you currently do? Because I feel like you enjoy, I enjoy, you're enjoying where you're at right now. I love what I do right now. So, so I took several years off and my wife and I came up with this thing that, um, it's my, my next book, it's called Micro Retirement. And it's this belief that I'm incredibly fortunate. I want to just say that at the very beginning where I am in life, but, um, it's this belief that, you know, bang, bang, <laughs> bang. we spend, life legs. retirement didn't exist before World War One. It did not exist. And now it's what we all talk about. Yeah. Spend, go and work and save your money so that you can get old enough to retire in time. It did not exist two, three generations ago. And I think it's a crying shame because we spend our time working in jobs we don't like, to buy things we don't like, to impress people that we don't know. And then we get done with that and we're too old to go do anything. So instead, why not never retire and work a little bit less now so that you can continue to work for the rest of your life, but in a better fashion. So my wife and I, we spend two weeks a month doing revenue generation. My wife is a, is a physician and I do executive coaching and leadership training. So I spend time with tip of the spear individuals, CEOs and owners of businesses who typically do not have peers. And I sit with them in the well and we process what they're going through. And I firmly believe the longest journey in the world is the 18 inches between man's heart and man's mind. And I help connect and integrate the journey I went on with these men and women who are building these businesses, who are exposed on every level, who, you know, when, you, when, when our obituaries are written about us, like less than 10 days, probably seven are going to be mentioned in our obituary. We're going to spend... 30,000 days on this earth and less than seven will be mentioned in our obituary. So if that's the case, if you break that down, like the couple days that we know uh, when we wake up or when we get married and kids and whatnot, but like the majority of the days that will be mentioned in our obituary, we are going to wake up that day and not know those are the days that are going to define us. (laughs) So like these are real high stakes, right? With regards to this. And so... I think, so I spend time with, with leaders to help them think about, to, to give them space to think about the macro side of these things. Yeah. And, and, and so I spend two weeks a month doing that. And then I spend, we spend two weeks a month doing non-revenue generation. I'm, I wrote my book as my first project that came out of that. By the way, don't write a book if you want to make money. There's no way to make money in writing books. <laughs> Unless you're Stephen King. It's a horrible, horrible industry. Indeed. Um, but if you... Uh, and my wife is starting to play music and she's got a bunch of guitars and she's doing all sorts of stuff. Like we're, we're going through this process. So, but what I've witnessed is 
in my vulnerability about my brokenness, if I will tell that story, here's what happened. I started to tell my story really quietly. The group of three friends I would have no, no nights with. And then they were like, they'd kind of open up a little bit more. And then they would, I would tell a couple other people and they'd open up more. And what I, what I, nine out of 10 people said, boy, if you only knew, like if you only knew my story that and how much it doesn't match the headlines. I mean, these are really powerful people. I'm going to run in entrepreneurial circles, right? These are people running business, starting businesses, et cetera. And almost all of them said, man, completely shattered behind the scenes. And this whole facade is completely fake. Wow. So, you know, I create these, um, God has given me the ability to create these sacred spaces where we can um, tell the truth to one another that leads to life change and, and walk alongside people on that, on that. Okay. Okay. Um, what does risk taking look like in, in relationship, whether that's friendship, marriage, kids, what have you? So, you know, that part in you that you, um, are ashamed of and don't really want anybody to know about. And you wonder if you don't need to answer this, but you wonder like if, if I really expose this, if anybody, if they'd be okay with it, like that's risk taking. That's like sharing, and, and you shouldn't do that with everybody. Yeah. But, I mean, there's a difference in, in levels of vulnerability and whatnot, but here's what I know about vulnerability, and I learned this from, from Brene Brown, who's the greatest you know, uh, writer in this. If you want someone to be vulnerable with you, the easiest way, the quickest way to do that is to be vulnerable with them. Yeah. Indeed. Right, and so I think risk-taking is vulnerability. Like, this is my, me coming on here and saying, let me tell you about, it looked like I was on top of the world. My marriage was in shambles. I was drinking too much. My kids didn't know me. I was like, it was not a good situation, right? I mean, that's like, I'm really sad about that. But my hope is, and my, is that someone will hear this and go, oh man, that's where I am. Or, oh man, I hope I never get there. And if yeah, I yeah. do, I can reach out to Nick or Street or whomever or somebody and just have this conversation because the reality is we're all dying. Like if you're not on the psycho, psychopathy scale, right? Where you don't really care about people's emotions. And there are people like that, but very, very few people. Yeah. Everybody after food and shelter wants one, two things. And that's to be seen and known. Like witness me, witness me. You ever see that, um, um, was a Mad Max, the, yeah, um, um, the Mad Max, the beyond the, the, I think it's Mad Max, Mad Max movie theater. No, I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. With That's, the cars and stuff, right? Yeah, I, with the cars. I know and the stuff. reference. I just didn't see the show. I didn't see the movie. Yeah, I saw well, the movie. It was a while back. Yeah. Remember, they spray the thing on their face and they say, "Witness me." Oh yes, yes, right. Yes, 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 like yes. that's the core of who we are. Like we want to be. We want to be. Like I want you to. I, I want to know that. Like I matter to you, yeah. right? If we're going to be in relationship with one another, yeah, I want to yeah. know that you matter, and I want to. And I also want to acknowledge my my blind spots. I mean, by the very definition of blind spot, I don't know what they are. Yeah. And, and it's, in my opinion, it's one of the scariest things in the world, which is to acknowledge something I believe to be true to, that is no longer true. Because if I can acknowledge that once, then that's a Pandora's box. Because what else did I think to be true that might not be true? Indeed, indeed. Okay, so lastly, before we move on, we talked about this before. What is the one quality you would say is important for a man looking for a wife? And is it vice versa? <sighs> What's the warning? <laughs> we talked about this. I love his answer. I tell you, the, 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 
Nothing else. Very few things matter beyond finding someone who's kind. Uh, I mean, you you can you can have a long list of height, weight, finances, intelligence, the whole nine yards. I'm telling you something. When my wife and I are at our best, we are kind to one another. And we, when we are at our worst, we are not kind to one another. So it does work vice versa. Oh, so, absolutely. So women should look for men who are kind. Men should look for women who are kind. I mean, that solves so many problems. You could be the richest of rich or the poorest of poor, and if you're kind to one another, you don't, you don't care. You know their intent. You know their intent, and you got yeah. each other. There you go. So, I mean, I think that's like the base, base level, and everything else after that is table stakes. I mean, if, if, you know, if he's tall and handsome and she's hot and like, great, more, more power to you. But man, find a, find someone who's ugly and kind better than pretty and not kind. So you can get you all you women out there. You can get you a five, seven man who's kind. Get your five, five king. Get your five, seven king who's nice. Look, women don't want the five, five king. I'm pushing, I should write a book called five, five king. You shouldn't. He he just told you you shouldn't write books. It's not about the money. It's about the experience. Don't touch me when you say things like All that. All right, hey, we about to start the smoke like session. That. You know what time it is. Hey, this is when the live studio audience has the opportunity to come and speak, ask questions. And if you really bout it, we keep a gas mask. You can get all the smoke. Hey. He going to say something. Oh, he see that? He going to hear that in the audio. Hey, hey, I got a question. Yeah. Can I do can I do can I be part of the audience? Absolutely. So so I uh I host at my um I host every once in a while uh, cigars and, and bourbon at my uh oh, my yes, house. I know. I love it. I brought my cigar tonight just in case. When's the next one? Street, Let street. Me know. I'll get you on there. Well street came last time street was over, it was real cold and we ended up staying out till three in the morning. We have a golf course behind my my, my house and we stayed out till three in the morning and street ended up falling asleep. <laughs> My wife and daughter were gone. She fell. He fell asleep in my daughter's bed. <laughs> Indeed, I had to leave the next morning. And I texted my wife. I said, "Heads up, there's a <laughs> there's a black man in my daughter's bed. <laughs> there's a button for this. There's a whole button for this. There's a button. <laughs> hey, yep. There's a button for that. Missed it. Warning. Black man. Black man. <laughs> but here's. <laughs> but but. <laughs> And Nick. Except for Nick. And Mark. And Mark. And Mark. I don't know what it means, but and I love Mark. it. All right, so we were out there till three in the morning. Remember what we were talking about? Uh, we were talking about, Uh-oh. look, the reason I fell asleep Uh-oh. was because, look, it was a great time. I've said that much. It was a great time. But... I, I know I know what the conversation was. It was so good he forgot and fell asleep. No, 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 no. I, I know wanna, what the conversation was. I just don't know what the root of it was. We I, ended up talking about like we talked about redline and we talked about Yeah, yeah. You know so this is so this is let me ask let me ask you this question real quick. So okay. since I'm the only white man on a black man show. What? What? It's facts though. It's it's So facts. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but 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 for real, like I think there is a ton of um how, how uh how do we become better for each other? That's my question. And I mean that in the sense that, you know, street, you know, my, um, you know, my story street, right? So, mm-hmm. so sold my business. I was living in a nice part of town. Um, I really became convicted. I didn't want to raise my kids there. It felt like a bubble. And so I moved to, we live in a really nice part of a, of a, of a 
I don't know how to say this. We live in a nice part of a of a town that's South Dallas. Indeed. And and although <laughs> I was having drinks with Ron Kirk and uh, a couple months ago, or a couple years ago, and I the former mayor and I was bragging about how I was moving to South Dallas, and he looked at me and said, "South, you moving to South Dallas? Whereabouts?" And I said, "Well." <laughs> Oak Cliff, he goes, whereabouts? I said, well, at Kessler Park. He goes, that ain't South Dallas. Yeah, Don't be telling yeah, people South yeah. Dallas. Yeah. You, 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 you have a golf course, bro. So, <laughs> Bishop Arts. <laughs> Fair enough. But I moved into a community. Absolutely. That is, that is a combination of, um, we're, the, we're one of two families in there that are um, white families. The rest are minorities and or um, gay couples. And it is the time of our life down there. Like it is a, we love the people we live with. And, um, and I have been, I have been living and enjoying raising my kids in this scenario that didn't look anything like where we came from, that didn't look anything like where most people are trying to get to. And so the conversation we were having, so in, in, and so like as an example, in our little area and our HOA documents that were written in 1968, there is a clause in there that says no one in the community is allowed to sell a house to, to anyone outside the community until they've been offered to everybody else in the community. And I thought, that's kind of weird. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the women, a black lady on the, on the board, said, I know what that is. And I said, what's that? She goes, that's when redlining was illegal. That was put in there to make sure that certain people couldn't buy in this community, right? Man, I'm completely dumbfounded by this. I grew up in Southern California. Like, it was, a whole, it was not a whole thing. And so... I'm in this position of I love wh- where I live and the people I'm in community with, and they don't look anything like me, and my life is better than b- better for it. So my question for this panel is, how how do we make more of this? Like this, the, the I can tell you, like the the bubbles people create for their lives are boring. Yeah, right. They're boring, and they aren't. There's no spice, and we're missing out on a lot of things out of fear. So what's, what's the move to acknowledge what's going on and to move closer together with regards to that? Right. Cause street, like you, like you call me, you call me your mentor and I, I guess I am, but honestly, like I get a ton of our, out of our relationship. Like I enjoy it. Like I'm looking forward to next time we go to have breakfast together. Right. Like you teach me a lot of things. So it's not me like bequeathing my knowledge to you. It's me being like, man, this is a whole different experience. How do we create that so that, that that's just normal wherever we are? Well, the issue is I feel like I get invited to a lot of conferences, to a lot of events. And one of the big things that's always talked about is racial reconciliation. Yeah. It's a myth. It's, it's a myth. Why is, why is that a myth? I don't rock with it. Cause like, what does that mean? Why is that a myth? So, so, so the issue is, let's just say you had an issue with your wife. Uh-huh. You can be reconciled with your wife, reconciled to what point? Back to where things were good. Mm-hmm. How do I yeah. reconcile yep. when there was no point of reference where things were good? And, and, and to just put a biblical spin on it, that is Bible because in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God actually, uh, Paul writes about how we are ministers of reconciliation, mm-hmm. right? God is reconciling That's the world back to himself, himself through yeah. us. Amen. But first, we have to be reconciled back to Christ. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the reconciliation actually hints at things were once good. Racial reconciliation in America 
is a myth because there's not a point in American history, not a single one, where we can say, "Oh, this is the optimal point where races and different colors and different ethnicities actually cohabit." We're in harmony at some point, peacefully. Yeah, yeah. we actually have to create that. Yeah, that's yeah. something that is foreign and not, you know, that's not in our history. So, so, so what's the better term for it? What well, would you call that instead? I agree with you, but what would you call that instead? Probably, if you want to keep the whole alliteration aspect, racial redemption. You know what I'm saying? Like, like redeeming this back to what it could be, rather than trying to reconcile it to where it was never existed. So, for or myself... What it, sh- what it should be, because... Yeah, yeah, what it could what, be what, and what it should what be. What it should be, yeah. because, you know, these things are written in the, in the founding documents of this country. All men are created equal. Amen. But... You know, again, we have men who are writing these documents who are owning slaves. Yeah. And so I think it's like you said, it's, it's redemption, what it should be. And that's the interesting part, because for me, I actually don't have a problem with the system. When I look at what's in place, the laws that are put in place, they're actually good laws. They're good things that like could be acted upon. It's just. When the laws are abused, when the system is taken advantage of, it's those who are a part of the system and leaders in the system that are misconstruing the results of the system. But the reason why we can always say, hey, this isn't fair. Did you not say in the did it does it not say in the we're always able to reference a human standard? And I feel like, you know, what I'm saying there is a general human standard within what was originally written. Now, it was written with a certain person in mind. But at the end of the day, we also see how there is a general standard we can actually go by. But as far as where do we go from here, I would say understanding at first, like I said, racial, racial reconciliation is a myth. And it's not something we can actually get to. It's not a point we can actually say, oh, now we've reached racial reconciliation. Our introduction to America, our introduction was building America. Our introduction was framing America. And we're introduced to America in chains. Exactly. So, so you know, I've talked about this. So one of my favorite books I've read in the last several years, that fundamentally changed my view on things was We Were Eight Years in Power by Tanisha Coates. And it's... He wrote eight essays. Uh, the book is nine essays, but he was originally hired by the Atlantic Monthly to write uh, a long-form essay from the perspective of a black man with a black president, first year of Obama. Okay. And it became so popular that they hired him every year to write this long-form essay. And so the We Were Eight Years in Power is those eight essays, eight years he was in power, and, and one additional one. And the We Were Eight Years in Power references a... I believe it was North Carolina, maybe South Carolina, but in South or North Carolina, uh, there was a group of um, uh, black men who came together and said, hey, we want to create our own government. And the white men said, fine, go for it. And the, the black government became so much more efficient and better, better run that after eight years, they said, no more of this. You're better at this than we are. So we were eight years in power. It was a alliteration on Obama, eight years in power, and eight years you know, back then. But there's this essay in there, and it, the, the title of the essay is The Case for Reparations. There we go. So, yeah, as, aside from racial reconciliation, what's needed is racial reparations. So he, it's a long-form essay, yeah, and he goes, through, he goes through all of the economic, like how do you, how do you actually value that, right? And, mm-hmm. 
and, and, and generation after generation, like what, what does that actually look like? But the, the, the end gist of the essay is, look, I think we have a case for why these reparations should happen. But I would be okay if we just acknowledge that there should be something. If there was just a national conscience, yes. a national, so, so like when we think about like um, South Africa, right? I mean, they did, um, they did, a, they called it a racial reconciliation down there, right? Where they actually yeah. came to terms. You look at like the Nazi trials, the Nuremberg trials, like they actually brought people and put them on, on trial around there. Like there was a national um, outrage and mourning. Here's the thing about, here's things about life. Like God, I think the reason, you know, God is omniscient and we're, we live on a chronological line is because when we hurt each other, when we create trauma and trauma, all trauma is, is something that we do to ourselves or to somebody else or somebody does to us that isn't how God designed us. Yeah. That's trauma, right? And it can be lots of trauma, little trauma, whatever. It doesn't matter. Trauma is trauma. It forever alters us. You need three things to come back from trauma. And they're grace, truth, and time. And I think the reason God put us on this chronological time is because he knew we'd hurt each other. And he wanted to give us time to be able to heal from that. So you've got to go through a grieving process in anything in life that you use that. And you've got to do that in comfort with other people. And so when you look at some of these things that have gone on on a national scale— it makes me just go, man, is that, is that, like, is that enough to go do that? Because that's what Tanisha comes back to. He's like, look, I don't think it's enough, but I think we should start there with his, just a national acknowledgement of this. Yeah. And look at this outrage over the you know, New York Times did the 1619. Um, they did this huge, all these essays on the 1619 basically said America was founded in 1619, not 1776. It happened to be when the first slaves were brought over and, yeah. and when first legislative government was in, involved. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, it's been a huge outrage and you've got, critical race theory and all these kind of things like, and people are, f- are afraid of this idea that like we tell the truth. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, it's, it's one of those things where, um, I went there when we, Oh yeah. Yeah. Look, look, I don't know. We, we haven't actually had this come. Kind of, Cause honestly, I'm, I kind of want to have like an episode just on critical race theory. Cause I'm like, when I look at the actual term itself, I'm like, what is, what is actually the pushback? You know what I'm saying? Teaching about race in schools, but I, I guess it's more to it than that. And so I, I know what I, it is. Okay. I know what Talk it is. To me, bro. I mean, I don't even know, the, I don't know all the details of critical race theory, but I know my friends who are against it, what the issue is. The issue is they personally did not participate in it. Therefore they don't want to assume the guilt of it. I don't want to assume the guilt of things I do. And I certainly don't want to assume the guilt of things I didn't do. Now that's the issue that they feel like. The interesting thing is because you talked about the grieving process. Is it possible to feel as though, there is an apology when it doesn't actually have any grieving, when there is no mourning. So, for example, like, like when you say, like, to be in 2022, and I asked, and I was like, hey, has America ever actually apologized for slavery? And somebody sent me a document from 2020. And I'm like, <laughs> it took, like, okay, cool. Cool story, bro. But, like, how, like it took that long? Like, like you, it's, it's, it's not an actual, like, like a first actual document done, I think I think it was a as a HJR too, House Joint Resolution too. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, why is it taking so long to actually just apologize for this? America has had no issue giving reparations in the past, even to the extent of the first people that got reparations for slavery were white people. <laughs> they got reparations to make sure that they had a recovering from the loss they had from the slaves. Mm. 
just so they couldn't lose their land. There were reparations given to the slave owners. So how are we very, very quick to give reparations to those who were the quote unquote oppressors rather than giving it to the those who were oppressed? And so yeah, but- if we're talking about a Christian nation, it's like, all right, when we see what justice is in Leviticus, justice is making someone whole. Not at all. And you cannot make someone whole if you do not recognize and address what was done to the people. But 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 street. Here's what I want to say. So I'm I'm, re- I'm reading this book, uh, Paul Johnson, American History of American People. I'm reading through Thomas Jefferson's life, and Thomas Jefferson, and one page, he talks about how he likes French wine and pâtés and shirts from Seville Row. Everything's coming over from Europe. He's got this fine taste, right? His entire life, Thomas Jefferson was in debt because of all that and Monticello trying to build it. That's crazy. Flip the next page. He dies in debt. And because he has debt, on his deathbed, his wish was to, to free his 130 slaves, including his lover, who was one of his slaves. Uh-huh. Because he was in debt and they couldn't settle it, they had no tr- his, his grandson said he had no choice but to sell the slaves, separating mother and children. Because he wanted pâtés and French wine. See, I don't think this issue is like, I, I think there is a deep major issue here, but I think there's a deep, there's a, there's a consumption issue here, which is I want what I want and I don't care how it affects other people. Thomas Jefferson, 130 slaves, separated, didn't go free because he wanted his pate. Oh yeah, Thomas Jefferson is one of the worst morally presidents we've ever, ever had. This man legitimately raped a slave girl who I believe was 16, had multiple children, kept them in a basement downstairs, and then finally brought her out. But to this day, there are still people named the Jeffersons that get no benefits yeah. from anything he's built or done. So, so come to 2022. The, terrible the, human being. The, I mean, I just met you two tonight, but Street, you and I have a good relationship. For sure. And I... People don't like when I talk bad about Thomas Jefferson. I really, Thomas, hearing, hearing the name Thomas Jefferson gives like chills. I'm like, ugh. Well, I mean, it probably should, but, but what do we do from here? Indeed. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I hear what you're saying about records. And so let me ask this back to you. Let me, let me do the open. Give me some smoke. Yeah. And so, like, and so, what do you want to say to me as a black man to a white man? What questions you have or what, like, what do you, what do you want to say that, so, that so, I can so, answer? Essentially, when, or not when I'm brought to these places, like back to what back to the original thing, because we kind of we kind of tangent. When I get to invited places and to talk about quote, quote unquote racial reconciliation, I'm like, okay, bet this is more than just hey, turn around to your neighbor and hug the the person who's a different race than you, and you know what I'm saying who's 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 diverse than you. If you're here's the issue. The standard is if you see somebody from a separate culture from yours. Take them to Starbucks so y'all can get to know each other better. <laughs> Rather than, are you willing to pull up to the hood and spend some time to where I'm at? Are you willing to get outside your quote-unquote comfort zone to relate to me? Because is that not what Jesus did? Yeah. And so, I think he's calling aspect, me out. I've never been to his house. <laughs> I don't live in the hood. <laughs> oh, shoot. He lives in, he lives in Arlington. He lives in like Grand Prairie. I didn't mean. Yeah. I didn't mean you lived in the hood. Cover zone. Cover zone. Yeah, yeah. Mitchell yeah. lives off a toll road, so hey, well, first he's of all, good. Hey, whoa! whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I didn't. Oh, oh, brother! Oh, whoa. 
hey, 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 I used to live in Village Oaks. You say that's my hood. You feel me? And then you know where'd you go back to? The back toll to road, my boy. Birds, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Hey, man, you know what I'm saying? Life of comfort ain't. Hey, got a sprout. But your point is, like, like, are you willing to meet people where they're, like, if you're not willing to meet people where they're at, then you're not passionate about reconciliation. You're not passionate about redemption. You're not passionate about relationships. You cannot start a relationship unless you're willing to bear all things with that person. How can you bear all things with that person if you're not willing to immerse? I want to hear what you have to say about this. (laughs) For sure. I I agree with what he was saying. Um, And I think another thing, too, that I'm seeing with some of the issues that I've had with some of my white friends from back then. We're not friends anymore. But was the fact that <laughs> sorry I'm I still love them they my brothers bang, in Christ bang, you know, but see, you, see you in see you in heaven brother what uh, <laughs> see you in heaven nah, but no 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 but uh but there was this like this thing that because we were from different cultures you thought your culture was right with everything yeah. you know what I'm saying yeah yeah and so when you step in somebody else's culture you that that idea has to go you know um, and just be open to what they're used to. You know yep. what I'm saying? So, Well, that's what I was saying earlier. Like, yeah. w- when we move to a different neighborhood, it, it, I expected that's what I was – like, I expected this is – look at me. Look at me going to do what I'm going to do. And I've been, I've been completely blessed by it. Mm-hmm. Like, that process of that, of going through that process. Yeah. But I guess the question is, like, how do you do that across 300 million people? Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 so realistically, you know what I'm saying, I don't believe it can be done worldwide, but I do believe it should be done in the church. The church is a body unified in diversity. When we look at Revelation, it talks about many different tongues worshiping, many different cultures worshiping together. How do you have many different cultures, many different tongues coming together in the end but we can't do it in the now. And so I feel like in order to really understand other cultures, you have to be willing to admit and immerse yourself in other cultures. And but it's takes, the most segregated, it's the most segregated place on, uh, in the country right now. Exactly. Well, I, but that's, I, I mean, feel, it is I, aside I, from I, country clubs, it's probably the most segregated place in the country. Well, but the, the, the thing is, even with the sense of battle rap, right? Christians aren't even willing to put to, to a battle. This is black Christians, white Christians, whatever it may be, because it's like, yo, it's vulgar. It is, it is vile, it is intense, it is aggressive. It's Welcome to humanity. Exactly. And humanity has an issue with unfamiliarity and immersion. So like, like because I'm not familiar with this, because I'm not comfortable with this, I'm not willing to actually immerse myself into this. And that is the biggest problem I have when it comes to ministering and evangelism. It is people that will judge a culture from the outside instead of immersing. Mm-hmm. Every time Jesus was in a culture, he immersed there and spent time there. We read the Bible so quickly, like it wasn't months spent in one spot, weeks spent in one spot. Paul pulling up to a spot and spending months, months, and months debating the entire time on the Sabbath, every single Sabbath, thinking it's going to be done when we pull up. And the issue is working in Village Oaks, hearing it from the kids themselves. These are, ki- these are kids in the urban community. They knew when white faces showed up, put your hands out because they're going to drop something off and then they're going to leave. But nobody's willing to stay. Who is willing to actually put the time in and develop a relationship? And so, yes, we have a relationship. You're willing to put the time in. 
that's where it starts. But it's deeper than just I have a black friend. I have a person of another cult. It's like I have somebody I'm willing to bear all things with. Is, is is it possible? So like I watched my so my son was here okay. earlier, right? He's he's about to turn seventeen. Yeah, fire fire kid by the way. Oh, he's the best. Yeah, he's legit. Uh, shout out to Will. Shout out to Will. Uh, like I look at his generation, and I don't see this being an issue with his generation. Oh, Gen, Gen Z, Gen Z is a is a they open them up. Yeah, they open to, to everything. 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 So is that it? Do we just have to kill off all the old ignorant white people? No, I, I not kill them off. Just let them here's die. The issue. <laughs> here's the issue, because 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 the thing is, there'll be the ones that are inheriting the businesses, inheriting the the platforms, inherit. And honestly, a lot about what Gen Z is doing right now, they're realizing we don't need your resources. I'm going to go do it myself. But they're experiencing things without the character right. first to build it. Yeah, and so, so that fixes a lot of it, right? Nah, because there has to be the character, has to be the covering from the former generation. And so I believe it's not just about who is willing to go and be bold. It's who is willing to go and be discipled. Like the the, the most important aspect of this is discipleship. You're discipling your son. And that's why he's willing and able to actually be involved in other cultures and be effective because he's been discipled. And that brings about a longevity. And when you actually leave him, he's going to be doing the same thing to somebody else. So that's why I don't even be focused on the three million. I'm just focusing on on these five because as soon as I get these five, guess what? They they can affect the three million. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it spreads from there. I'm what, Elijah. what about you, Elijah? What question you got? You've been awfully quiet. I thought you were bringing fire tonight. You've been over oh, sitting quiet over there. Yeah, Elisha. You know, sometimes you just got to know when to talk and when to listen. Yeah. I've been listening, so, yeah, this is good. Soak. Yeah. But, laughs to the audience. Talk to me. Yeah, yeah y'all out there got y'all feet kicked up. Y'all big chilling. Laptops out. Yes. Like big, we invited y'all we just to got the Wi-Fi password. Out. Y'all straight. We never should have given y'all the Wi-Fi. So I agreed exactly with what you just said, and even the example that you're setting for your son with discipleship. I mean, truth be told, it's a very big thing to deal with, and we can't try to change the whole world. We only can change the world that we live in. But it literally just starts. You have to start somewhere at the end of the day. So the discipleship you're taking your son through, it's going to have longevity, like he said, because you're taking the time to instill it into him. But people do have to be willing. Not everybody's willing to learn or even take the time to really understand. And I do believe we're in a different generation, but I do believe they have to be knowledgeable before they can go and just immerse themselves into everything. Because uh, we can be open to a lot of things, but there's a lot of things that you need to be aware of before you even go and dive into that. It's the character. Yes. The, the character yes. building is the crucial part that Gen Z needs, and they won't receive unless they have the covering. Like, like Gen Z has the ability to go and have the platform, have the reach, gain the following, and not have the character. And that is a problem because a platform without the first foundation of character is dangerous. You have to have the character built in there. And you get character by having someone you can filter your mistakes through, through a discipler and a mentor. So so I've got a question for you. What, what advice would you give me with regards to my question? And how do I, how do I, to your point, if I stay in my own hula hoop, to manage my own life, what advice would you give me? Um, honestly, I would just tell you to keep doing what you're doing and continue to remain open and just allow him to 
yeah, kind of provide the covering like as you would as a parent, but for him to make his mistakes, but don't be afraid of what he may subject himself to just by being open. Like, you know what I'm saying? Because you really can't gauge like what will happen, but all you can continue to do is to encourage him to do so. Mm-hmm. And the thing is like, He's going to teach somebody else like his children, but you never know the impact he's going to have on his own friends just mm-hmm. because of how willing he is to be able to immerse himself. So keep doing what you're doing. I, th- I think one of the interesting questions I come across often in, question, in conversations like these is, cool, I'm starting to get it. How do I tell this to my friends who don't get it? <laughs> well, I mean, it's... It's, it's, yeah. How do you evangelize the people? The, how do you evangelize people? But let me ask you this. Is this a frustrating question? Like I'm trying, like, is this frustrating to even have this conversation? Yes. No. Yeah. Speak for yourself. It is. Why is it frustrating? It's not frustrating for me. Um, because it's frustrating, not because you don't get it. I'm trying to hold it. It's fine. Don't touch me, Mitchell. It's frustrating, not because you don't get it. It's frustrating because... Do you think I don't get it, or do you think Well, that, no, just in oh, general, yeah. you, right? Yeah. It's, it's frustrating because... Those are my pronouns, you. That's <laughs> 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 hilarious. Um, it's, it's more so frustrating because we are having these conversations, right? And it seems as if the burden of this conversation is on us but we actually don't have the full power to bring about change. And so the people that are asking us the questions are in fact, the people that can come alongside of us. But so like, if you don't, if you don't recognize a problem, right? If I say, Hey Nick, your shoelaces are untied. You shouldn't walk with your shoelaces. You're like, why? I'm like, cause you're your trip. I've never tripped Trey. The, the problem is there. You know what I'm saying? But it hasn't affected you. So it's not really a problem to you. That doesn't mean it's not there. And so I think the frustrating part is I'm living my life. You're living your life. Mitch is living his life. We're all living our lives. And because it doesn't affect you, you're like, "Mm, it's a thing of the past. It was 50 years ago. It was 100 years ago, whatever. And it's like, no, dude, like these things are so deeply ingrained in this country that you can live five blocks away from me and have a completely different experience or the same block or or the same block. You know what I'm saying? So I think the frustrating part is not the people who are so on the opposite end of the spectrum. The frustrating part is I go to church with some of these people. I sit in the same, I literally have a guy who was my, he, he he was a, he was leading, he led a youth group when I was at, uh, at church, when I was in high school. He's now running as like a state representative or something like that. And his main platform point is he's running against critical race theory. And it's not the fact that he doesn't necessarily uh, support it, whatever. It's the fact of I'm listening to what he's saying. And he's like, this is creating victims in our kids. This is a godless curriculum. And I'm like, dog, <laughs> bro, <laughs> I, I, I literally was being poured into you. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And so the dangerous part about it is it's not that you just don't see the problem. Is then now, if you get a hold of somebody, you know, uh, if, you get a, if you get a hold of a, of a kid of color, right, who doesn't necessarily come from a strong background, right, who doesn't necessarily have a strong uh, 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 home life to kind of root him in some of the things that are truth, yeah. you then influence him in a way that is not respectful to what he experiences but now you influence him to what you think he should 
how, how we should view the world, right? Mm-hmm. So now you're not only uh, um, oblivious to truth yourself, you're now creating somebody oblivious to truth, them, the, uh, you know, themselves as well. But also you're not allowing him to fully experience who he is in the context that he lives in. And so the tough part is it's not just this is still a problem. It's not just, you know, all the different things. It's a combination of them. And the fact that I can be in close proximity with somebody as a Christian who says they love the same God as I do, but they're completely choosing to disrespect and disregard um, a reality that so heavily affects me. So in, in, in those moments, is it important? It, should it be encouraged or would it behoove others to, before becoming passionate about something, filtering that perspective through somebody of the opposite creed, right? So essentially, before I go and talk about critical race theory mm-hmm. and then back that with, well, I have black friends, I'm familiar with the black experience, talking to somebody black who actually has the opposite perspective. Because I found that, like, before I go and get passionate and speak about things, even even Christianity, mm-hmm. like, if you look at my YouTube, like, uh, suggested videos, it's debates, because I love hearing what people have to say in contrast to what I believe. Uh-huh. It actually strengthens what I believe. Uh-huh. And without receiving the contrast, without the openness to receive the contrast, it actually fences you in to your perspective so heavily that you miss the nuance. Yeah. You miss the, the, the diversity. You miss the perspective that could actually help you in your own perspective. Yeah, And I, I, I mean, one of the things that's helped me is I think when you're doing something like that, whether it's, you know, white person trying to understand the black experience, men trying to understand the experience of women, um, parents trying to understand the experience of kids, like yeah. whatever it is, you have to realize that when you're seeking to understand somebody, the worst thing you can do is carry your privilege into that experience. Mm. Right. So one of the, the thing that taught me this was I had a, at a, at a young lady who I was friends with, um, from college, and we were talking about, this was back in like 2017, and we were just talking about just like rape culture. And there were some things that Did you say was, rape culture? Rape culture, right. There was a, I forget what the story was, but it, it came out, and that was the topic of the conversation. And so she was, she started to list the things that she could not do as a woman. And it were minute things. Like, when I go and I park in a parking garage, yeah. if I can't avoid parking in a parking garage, as soon as I get in the car, I lock the door, Right. I don't wear my hair in a ponytail. And I'm sitting there in this conversation. I'm like, yo, like, that's that's crazy. That's OD. And she was like, yeah, I don't think you really get it. I was like, okay. And it was very frustrating for me because she was like, you're coming from a place of privilege. I'm like, no, I don't have privilege. What I had to do was I had to sit that aside. And so what I did was I went and I volunteered at uh, the Dallas Area Rape Crisis Center. And what happened was, I realized that I thought I realized that when I heard this this thing that I have a that I have privilege as a man that I became defensive because it's I would never do that to you. Wow. How often do we hear that yeah. in a topic of race? I would never do that to you. I didn't do that. Those are my ancestors. What you don't realize is your privilege automatically separates you from somebody. Yeah. And it's, one thing I one thing I commonly find is that those who are actually and I don't want to make this about critical race theory, yeah. but those who are actually familiar with the a concept of the black experience have actually served in black neighborhoods. And, exactly. People who have served in black neighborhoods, uh-huh. I'm like, literally, when I hear some people speak, I'm like, you've never been to the hood. All you do is read statistics. Yeah. 
And if you're basing an ideology or philosophy off of statistics, then you'll miss the heart and the people that are the numbers in those statistics. And that's why I'm like, you have to lay down your privilege, right? Wow. You have to be uncomfortable. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable because as somebody who is a white man, and I tell you, hey, I know kids that if you went there, like he said, they'd be looking for a handout. If you don't hand them nothing, they don't think you're any good because their experience tells them a certain thing. That's offensive, and I would agree, but the bigger picture, again, with me going and volunteering in these places is like there's something I'm missing. There's something that I haven't experienced, and just because I haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's not a problem. Just because it doesn't affect me doesn't mean it's not a problem, but – if the goal is to be in harmony, right, if the goal is Ephesians 4, bearing love with one another, then I have to put aside this this privilege in the name and for the sake of my brother, right? Yeah. Well, and I guess what you're saying, what I'm what I'm hearing you say with regards to that, because I agree with you, is it's, it's actually two parts too, right, which is even acknowledging you have privilege first and then... And then understanding what that is. It's, and it's so interesting, right? Because yeah. people think that, you know, when they hear white privilege, it's like, oh, it's a bad thing. It's not a it good thing. It is what or, it is. It's not a good or a bad thing. Yeah. It's, it's like saying, it's, like, it's almost kind of like he has privilege because he's tall. He can reach high stuff. Yeah. It's, you know, that's a very small, you know. Five, very, five six king. Yeah, exactly. Five, six king. <laughs> five, five king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five, five king. So, Bestseller. You feel me? So, you know, like, <laughs> it, privilege is just that. It, it's not something that you were looking for. It's not something that you went out and got. It's just something that was afforded to you because of who you are. But I think we hear that and we get defensive. The worst thing you can do when trying to understand somebody is defend. Let's hear it, Taylor. What's the question? <laughs> what were you saying? You said something about dark-skinned oh. women, light-skinned women, black women. Me and Mitch had a conversation the other day about light-skinned versus dark-skinned, kind of. The, the question at hand was... Uh. Because he made a comment about light skinned devils, and I said, "What does that mean?" Whoa! And he said, well, "I'm sitting right here. I'm now Wait, team no, dark no, skin." No, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And I, I said, "Well, what does that mean?" And he said, "Well, when I talk to dark skinned women, I sense that they it felt really unprotected by the black man." So when he just made that comment a few minutes ago about protect black women, that's why I said, "Do you only mean dark skinned black women?" So in your experience, in this conversation, you got the the. The you got the feeling from Mitch that he doesn't necessarily value light skinned black women. You got me muted, so this isn't even fair. Wait a minute, let me just because no, 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 wait. She has to completely explain her point. You have a tendency to interrupt, and so I want her to get it out. He can respond because of this right here. Because of this right here, you're proving my point. You I wanted her to like clarify. So you were saying in a conversation, it, 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 it presented itself as Mitchell doesn't necessarily. He, he called them light skinned devils. That's what. <laughs> wow. Go ahead. You're unmuted. I said mm-hmm. the devil appears in the form of an angel of light. Skin. Hey, can I have editorial? <laughs> you can. can I can I get access to the source files on this, please? So, wow. so the source files. I, the source files. Hey, hey, Pat can tell you. My whole life, I was seeking out the yellow bone. Don't vanity. bring Pat into this. <laughs> well, uh, stay uh, away, Pat. Stay away. Okay, so uh, uh, essentially, this is based on my limited experience. I, I haven't dated a lot, and 
My thing was, for myself personally, I was not even attracted to dark-skinned women. I had zero attraction to dark-skinned women. I was the person who would say, you're cute for a black girl. That was me. Warning, 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 warning. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, like, for, for, like, I'm, I'm like that no more. You see his life? Indeed. Come yeah, on, you know what I'm saying? So, so, but, but, but essentially, <laughs> I was a part of the problem because of, I believe, to be my experiences. And I would, I would default it with, hey, you see my mom. I would try to be like my mom. She's light skinned. You know what I'm saying? So, but I felt like that was really just like a, a, a crutch I could use to get away from. It's one thing to talk about preference. But when I'm, I'm, I'm going through and I'm saying, hey, what do you prefer in something? And then all I'm talking about is what I don't prefer. I think that's the issue. That's and so when I was talking about dark-skinned black women, I never heard, and back to what we're talking about, the experience of privilege and non-privilege. And so after talking to dark-skinned black women, they were like, yo, black men don't love us. And I was like, I love y'all. And then I looked at, first, Black entertainers, and I saw their wives on the consistent basis, and they were either foreign, they were white, they were light-skinned, and it was a constant trend. I was like, wow, on a media front, on a platform front, black love in the sense of two dark-skinned people is not commonly shown. And so because of that, I was like, is this an issue with my perspective? And if it's an issue of my perspective, then I want to listen to more stories. I hosted a club clubhouse space that was do black men love black women. And for that period of time during that night, it was the um, the most viewed clubhouse that night to where even Lakeith Stanfield popped in and started like chopping it up with us. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of crazy. And the whole time I'm hearing stories about dark skinned black women saying, yo, this is my experience. This is my experience. And it broke my heart. And so for me, yes, I, I, what you heard was like a, a, the, the, the facetious joke about, yeah, this is my experience, light-skinned women, so I don't deal with light-skinned women. I'm still attracted to light-skinned women. But my desire is, and my first, I believe that it would be beneficial if, as a leader, other black children saw black men dating black women. And when I say black women, dark-skinned black women. Because that's not common. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't want you to feel like I'm trying to come at you. I promise I'm not. I love you. You're a great guy. Tell me. <laughs> no offense, but... Um, Nick, my, Nick, Nick, you can leave any point now. I'm I'm fascinated. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know there was I didn't know there was degradation of the I didn't know this here. It's not yeah, real. Yeah, it's yeah. real. Read, read the Willie Lynch letters. It's real. So much. I, See, I'm, ch- I'm ch- it's my privilege right here. I don't there's I didn't even know. Light skinned black women, there's dark skinned black women, and then there's black and white women, mixed women. But I, I mean I know that, but I don't I didn't know that there was like a discrepancy between discrepancy. Yeah. 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 It's like a hierarchy. Yeah, so so typically when you see black so 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 Nick Nick typically when you see black women in high positions in a job they're more like they're light skinned or mixed or mixed and so like this this is a problem that like dark skinned black women have commonly complained about it's like yo yes we're represented in the world but we are not represented in the world and so the black woman experience is separate from the dark skinned black woman experience and they call it light privilege. 
So I guess. Oh my lord! It's a lot. It's a lot, bro. It's. I, we need a worse, We need another bottle of that rye. Need, yeah, I only know. brought one bottle tonight. <laughs> so, so I guess, and this is gonna sound. This is gonna sound really directed at you, but I love you. I'm trying, so, bro. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I guess the question should be. I guess my question would be like, why do we have to hear? the grief to qualify us to be desire for them to be desirable to us. Like, in other words, like why does somebody have to tell me that they're hurting for me to see value in loving them? Right. And this is not necessarily like, Oh, like attacking somebody's preference. Right. But I think the method, like the, the, just the idea of representing and loving on black women, dark skin, black women, light skin, black women, black women, holistically, I find it that we have to hear the stories. We have to hear the pain before we're compelled to do so. And I think that's a problem. Well, I'm not saying this is the formula. I'm, I'm just saying this was my experience. Because and, so, and, and so I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, in order to love black women and, and be attracted to black women, all dark-skinned people should hear, hear out the stories. What I'm saying is on a different front but the same context, um, someone who's a, a friend of mine who grew up in a suburban neighborhood. He grew up with a white friend his entire life. That white friend and him were literally best friends. It wasn't until one day they were driving home and the police stopped them because the black friend was driving. Police stopped him. He's at his house dropping off his white friend and he lives right down the street. And so as a black man, he went through the motions. Hands on 10 and 2. Be respectable. Change your tone. Just follow whatever you can do to make it through that situation. And so by the end of the experience, the white friend said, yo, why were you doing all this? And why did we get pulled over? He said, do you not know this happens to me all the time? And so the white friend started crying. He's like, I had no idea this was your experience. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it does take grief for you to empathize. And so for me, it wasn't the aspect of I truly believed that. I love black women to the extent that they desired. And it wasn't, like I said, it, it wasn't just my <clears throat> preference, mm-hmm. but it was the non-preference. That's the issue. Right. Yeah. That's, that's and, what, and, that's, and, that's and so, and so I had the, I had the non-preference, like I wouldn't date a dark skinned black woman. And so that's, and that's, and so it, yeah. it wasn't until I actually heard, and I'm like, man, is this reflective of my own self? Uh-huh. Is this reflective of how I feel about myself? You know what I'm saying? And these are questions I had to ask myself. And then this is something I believe about attraction. I don't believe attraction is a choice, but I believe based on your experiences and based on how you view your environment, your attractions can change. So it wasn't until I actually started to have a different perception of the world I was in and change my experiences of how I was experiencing the world that I believe my attraction shifted. And I actually became attracted to dark-skinned black women. So even outside of a romantic space, before you had this revelation, do you think <laughs> revelation? Yeah, revelation. Um, do you think just outside of just outside of romantic space? Do you think your treatment of dark skinned black women treatment. was different? Uh, so how I treated? Yeah, like just eat, we 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 know you had a. a, a, a you were exclusively attracted to light skinned women at one point, right? But outside yeah. of outside of the dark skinned women that you could have possibly been romantically involved in, like 
your friends who were dark skinned dark skinned black women was the treatment of them different? I don't believe it, I don't believe, I don't believe the treatment was different okay. cuz cuz I've always and you you know me like yeah. I've always had I've always been very very familiar and friendly and platonic with the opposite sex Yeah you were friendly nigga so, Wow bro thank you warning warning Why are you warning, warning. I thank warning. You. So, so let me. Can I jump in here real quick? Go ahead. Of course. Talk to us, Nick. So, God, this is I. This is I opening. This is I opening for me here. Thank so you. So, were you unaware that these things existed? Yeah. Like this conversation, this context. Oh yeah, we had this every day. E, uh, I, e, mm, yeah, I think so. Indeed. I mean, to this extent, to this extent. I mean, I knew there was. Well, yeah, I probably was. I probably was. So, my question for you. Street, when you say I was, or what, what you said, which was Street is exclusively attracted to light-skinned black women, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? Yeah. Would you consider, if someone said, hey, I'm only exclusively attracted, if, if I'm a white man only attracted to white women, Ooh. is that's, that? It's, it's, like I said, well, that's, that's not that the way. issue. Oh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Is that, um, is, <laughs> not is that okay, that's a dumb question, but like that feels like. Uh, I don't, I don't know how to put well, this, well, but it feels, it feels like there's a no, no, no. There, there, there's, there's like nothing there's wrong with. Wait, wait. Here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with saying that because, like I said, the if issue, I, the issue wasn't the fact that I had a preference. The issue was that I had a non-preference, and so when somebody asks me, "What do you prefer?" and I'm bringing up what I don't prefer, yeah, that's the issue. And so, so if I say, so, so if someone's attracted, if the white who are you attracted to? Man is attracted I don't think, to a white I don't date woman. Black women. If they just say, "Hey, I'm attracted to white women," as opposed to, "I don't like, I don't date black women." That's an issue. But isn't it? Isn't it the end of the day? The facts are the same. Well, it's, it's it's I think it's dealing with the heart because when you say I don't do something, yeah, then that means it literally puts off the possibility that it actually could happen. And so, literally, but whether you say it or don't say it, it's still going to be the same. Not necessarily, because it, so for example, um. I'm less likely to date somebody that's white. It would literally take the Lord saying, hey, date this person. Yeah. That don't make you less likely. <laughs> I think there's a more aggressive term for that, but I'm going to let you have it. Wait, wait. I don't know what that means. But, it, but, but, but from, because like, I, I, I truly do love black women. You know what I'm saying? But even to the extent of what that means, I don't, when it comes to say, hey, when it comes to your preferences, what do you prefer to date? I tell them what my preferences are, but if my preferences have to include a non-preference, which is what we saw on the whole um, um, the the fresh and fit thing, it's like, yo, oh yeah, black women, I, I don't date, I, I don't get down with the brown. It's like, fam, like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, like, because because when because when black women hear these things, they're not thinking, okay, bet, like, it's not the fact you just wouldn't date me. You actually are expressing hate towards me. You're actually expressing some a disdain towards me. And I think that's the issue. And I believe that through my experiences, through my upbringing, through my through how I perceived it, my environment, I actually had a disdain towards dark-skinned black women. Right, right. And I had to deal with those things mentally, internally. I didn't go through counseling. I didn't go through, you know what I'm saying, therapy or whatever. It was just something like listening and hearing how black women thought about this. I was like, I was just broken in myself. Go ahead, Aaliyah. Um, so my question was, what if we like switched it? So you're talking about with your, your attraction to dark skin. Oh, 
your attraction to dark skin dark skin women but what about the women who feel like oh i can't say i'm attracted to white guys like oh, i'm not gonna love black men are gonna be like i'm not attracted to black guys like you know what i'm saying like how feels like a double standard right, right. that's what i was asking like, yeah, like i don't i don't so well, I, well, I think the I think the idea of preference is what what he's what he's suggesting is there's preference and then there's um, I don't right so I could say hey if you ask me what I want to eat I could say uh or if if we're going out to eat and I you want say pizza. yeah which 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 would you prefer pizza or seafood and I say pizza that doesn't necessarily mean I don't want seafood but when presented with two options I'm going to prefer the pizza but if you say I don't but, want seafood is that worse. But if, 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 but then if I now say, hey, do you want pizza or seafood? And I say, hey, I don't eat seafood. That's different than I prefer pizza because now yeah. I'm saying I don't eat it, period. So it's not even an option. So when you hear, when you hear, hey, I prefer XYZ, I prefer to date white men, I hear that as your preference. And it's like, that's okay. But when I hear, hey, I only date white men or I don't date yeah, black men different. or I don't date white men or I don't date white women. But the results is, are the same. The result is not the same. Because again, with the, with the, with the first analogy, it is, hey, if, if you had a choice, what race of women would you date? You say white women. Okay, cool. If I ask you that same question, you say, hey, I don't date black women. Then it becomes, I, I, that's not even an option. Because there's because thirty the, other races you because missed. because now because the again preference is not an issue it's it's the fact that I don't even qualify you as a possibility to be a, to be in my life and what right? experiences have you had to disqualify me what what things have happened in your life to disqualify an entire people group so why don't you like light skinned women Mitch I still love light skinned women <laughs> yeah like look this I believe that's going to be thrown in my flesh. Oh my Bang. Coming from my side of things, you said? No, oh, oh so mixed like, side. Like, like, oh, you said Nick. No, oh, mixed. I can see how you heard that. But mixed. Mixed. She's yeah. mixed. Uh, well, yeah. Okay. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like having like white aunts or uncles, and I just feel like sometimes it's like, well, like we were talking about the hood before, right? I necessarily haven't been there. And so sometimes I feel like I don't get to connect to a body of people because it's like, well, your, your, your choice should be black men. Like, or you shouldn't date white men. Like, they have plenty of black men. Like, I don't know. It's like you have to, like, pick, and if you don't pick the right one, you're wrong. Wrong. I, yeah, like, like I, don't, I don't, I can't speak to that experience because I'm not mixed. But... I will say that I think it's to say there is a right or wrong choice. I'll never be that. Exactly. There are people who who do believe like, hey, you can't be pro-black and marry outside your race. I think that's completely pish posh. I think that's just stupid. Umar. You know, what I'm saying? <laughs> shout out to Dr. Umar. We still wait on that school, my boy. Um, <laughs> but I he, think he got to raise three hundred million more dollars. We <laughs> yeah, We've been, we been waiting on that school for a minute. I'm pro- I promise you. Uh, but I, I will say like, there. I don't think there is necessarily like. Oh, you're a black woman. You should want to date. You know what I'm saying? Or you're a black man. You should want to do this. I don't think there is a right or wrong choice there. I think exactly. the heart behind it is really what's going to tell you what's right yeah. or wrong. Again, like to say that somebody is not worth being in a relationship with versus saying like, hey, I don't see anything wrong with them. I just prefer this over this. That's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. I think the the first option tells you that, 
okay, it's not that you prefer something over me. It's you don't see the value in who I am, period. Mm. That is the issue, right? When you hear, hey, black men, if you're not dating a black woman, then, you know, are you really black? Or white or white men who say, I only want to date white women. Like, <laughs> like, it's going to bring about a certain conversation. And that's why, like, I use the food thing because, like, one day I could be in the mood for seafood. You know what I'm saying? I could be in the mood for seafood for three, four weeks in a row. And then some shift, and I want pizza. Like, I, I don't think it's anything wrong with having a preference. I think it's something wrong when you say, I won't date this. You know what I'm saying? I won't date this. Race. And that's and the I, thing, because attraction does and can shift, yeah. even in a marriage. There may, I, in, in talking to the married people I do know, it's like, yeah, sometimes I do not love my wife. Sometimes I'm not attracted to my husband. Sometimes things aren't happy. But we are dedicated to the commitment and the responsibility more than we are to the aspect of the feeling and, 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 and what I first initially experienced on the honeymoon. And so these are things that when it comes to love and if love is the foundation, you have to always make that the default and draw back to the default so that those things can be reconciled. Those, those things can be renewed and so you can have a renewing experience of what you had formerly or even amplified that to where it's like, man, I never even got to experience this before because I learned something new in this entire trial of, of getting to know you. You know what I'm saying? So the, the issue with making the attraction the, 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 uh, the determining factor on whether or not I will date somebody because even the person who, who I'm dating right now, I wasn't initially attracted to. It was, it was somebody who I, I considered a sister. You know what I'm saying? But it was through, through the experience of actually talking to her and understanding her, I'm like, oh, snap. I'm gaining attraction yeah. towards you. And so that's why I said I feel like it's our, how we perceive the world and our experiences that actually affect attraction. Now, I was going to say, and I think to your point, I feel like the outcome will be the same. If the heart's not in the right place. So you can say either one, but if your heart's not there, I think that's where it goes back to what you were saying. Like it's the same result. Gonna, yeah, yeah. That's, that's when it's going to be the same result. I think just one lessens the blow in a sense. If gotcha. Makes sense. Yeah. So, and it, yeah. it's even the communication aspect. It's like to know that, okay, bet if, if you're a white person, it's like, hey, what's your preference? It's like, I, I prefer to date white people. That a black woman hearing that is not going to be impacted as, oh, yeah, I don't date black women. And it, like, cause like black, I'm like, yeah. what we got to do with the conversation? Yeah. Like, like, where, why, how do we get tied into this? <laughs> why for how come? Why for how come we got to get tied into this uh, stipulation of regulations? You feel me? Like, what's that? <laughs> hey, hey, come on and sit down, but hey, this it's gonna be the last thing, we, and we gotta get out of here. You know what I'm saying? We we are definitely going to be out. Sway is not gonna like talk to me, newbie. Talk to me, newbie. So, Nick, uh, Nick, you had made a statement whenever they first started the conversation. You was like, yo, I didn't even know this was a thing, right? Um, that division between um, skin complexion, so to speak, um, I don't know if you know, that's something that was started in slavery by slave masters. It was a separation between, like, uh, the value of the slaves were... Um, you know, was yeah. It was it was it was Melanin. determined by the the fairness of their skin. So they had this term that well, between house black people, it was house niggas house and niggas. it was field niggas. Yeah. Okay, house niggas were Light like skin. my color and lighter, and then the 
the slaves in the field were the dark skinned ones. Okay. And so they created division within uh the the slaves just off of that alone, where it was just like if 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 I'm out in the field, you know, in the sun for 17, 18 hours of the day, and I see the light skinned dude or the light skinned girl in the house, I'm looking in the I house like y'all got Y'all, y'all yeah, chilling, you. you know what I'm saying? Yep. And that was something that was actually created during that time that just... It's still it's, around it's today. It's one of those things that just perpetuated yeah. over time to now it's been a thing for, you know, our parents and our parents' parents. It always became a thing. Like, even during, um, you know, segregation time, yeah. it was like you had white passing uh, people who yeah. was like, they were black, no doubt, but their skin were so light that it's like you could go somewhere and be like... Oh no, I'm I'm white, and yeah. they're like, hmm, yeah, you got it, <laughs> like yeah, you, gotcha. you're white, okay. you're white. Yeah. Versus somebody that was a streets complexion, it's like, nah, bro, you know what, you know what you need to drink here, bro. Like hey, yeah, you, yeah. you know what door you need to walk through. The nigga pies. And it it just created that division because <laughs> it was yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Feel like I didn't. Come- it, it just created that division gotcha, where okay. it was like that's great insight. I know light skinned people had the privilege. Yeah. yeah, was it surprising that I didn't know this? Yes. Yeah. Well, not surprising. Not surprising. It was more so like um, ironic. It was more ironic than anything. Like you didn't know about something that your people created. Like it was started by white people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They created that division between us. So it was like. It was just ironic that you didn't know it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, I yeah. wasn't really surprised because it's like, again, you have to, if you haven't immersed yourself into the culture, the, the, the vileness and the, the subtle um, evilness of what slavery actually was. Like most people just think slavery and they like, okay, chains, whips. But it's like, no, when you no, actually no. go and study, they were doing some diabolical yeah, yeah. things that were Warfare. either physical or or psychological that completely just broke the slave that like the fact like when you really really go and study it it's almost like it's miraculous that we are even able to be here in America still being productive and still being compassionate people and not like completely net turner mold every single day like yeah. the fact that that didn't perpetuate generations down all the way to here yeah. is like wow that's yeah. that's god that's the evidence of god because it was diabolical like i'm talking about the most evil things <laughs> like that you can think of like it's probably worst form of slavery within history bro just to so give like, an example and this is kind of graphic this is kind of graphic but there was this device that was uh i want to say it was like it was a medieval device like victorian era right um they called it the um I can't remember the name of it, but it was a device that shaped like a pear, right? Like it's shaped like a pear and it opens up. So what they would do with it is they would literally as a as a punishment, they would take it and insert it into people, whether uh, women, it was vaginally, if it was man, it was anally. And they would literally let it open up. And it was like a it wasn't like a slow. It was like a like a bear trap. Like yeah. A, and they would literally use that to punish yeah. slaves. You know what I'm saying? You're talking about evilness that was that diabolical. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, like, that's just one example. They so, had, like, 20 so, different so things to, that was to that your po- To your point, though, and to our early discussion, you've got two – what this is opening my eyes up to um, is what you just – what I'm going what I'm, I'm to repeat back to what you said because I don't want to 
but but basically the I, what you said was it's a miracle to use your words that you're produ- productive. What'd you say? Productive, yeah, productive, and peaceful. You're productive and peaceable, peaceful, right? Compassionate. So there, that um, that is automatically like a hey, we've done our part, and then you have a what seemingly I can imagine a large portion of white people being like, we're not giving an inch. So it's like we're, we're doing our we're doing our part to come to the table. And it seems like I could see how it could seem like another group is like, we're not even coming. We're not coming anywhere close to the house that's in the table. Right. Is that, is that an accurate description? Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's um, definitely not being uh, met halfway. Um, you know, cause, cause I, I've been told many, many times by, uh, by white people. Look, it's over, like, it's over. Like it was a long time ago. It wasn't me. It was generations ago. Like just get over it. So that is a very closed off stance, which is I'm not even going to be curious. I'm not even going to like, like want to know anything else about this, which is bad enough by itself. But then when you add to the idea that, hey, we've actually taken multiple steps on our end to, for reconciliation or redemption. Yeah. It yeah. makes it almost makes it the insult even worse. For sure. For sure. Just the lack of accountability. That's all it is. Yeah. I mean, everybody had that problem. Like nobody want to be told that they're. Wrong, and like I said, especially I feel like the solution it it begins with immersion. I'm saying understanding cultures in the same way I had an expansion of knowledge through actually listening to black women, and like like you have an expansion of knowledge by actually listening to black men and black people and LGBTQ people. But but the problem with the immersion, I agree with you regarding the problem is in America through nobody's fault at all. If you're if you're not in the top ten percent. If, you, if you're not on the top 10% or 1% income earners, the majority of your net worth is in the home you own. Yeah. Ownership. And the home you own is highly segregated. Yeah. So when you're talking about an immersion situation, you've actually got this factor, which is just can be, not always, maybe it's convenient, but can be purely economic. Yeah. Right? And so that precludes the, I mean, just look at Dallas. Well, well so when it I say immersion, the immersion. It's, it's, not, it's not actually going and moving to the hood. I'm not encouraging people to move to the hood. I think that would be beneficial for some to do. Like the Axe Church, they literally sold all they could. I'm so not saying to move into the hood or not to. I'm saying, why do we even have a hood? Like, indeed. Now, now which is which is, goes back to ownership, which goes back to reparations started with giving reparations to the slave owners, which goes back to, like, you know, redlining. It goes back to things that put other people in places to be more successful than a other group of people. And so, yes, the concept of ghettos, the concept of hoods is an issue. Now, I believe that, especially with the concept, of, like with the, with, the, with the platform Black Men Do Talk, like it's one thing to address problems, uh, but it's another thing to talk about solutions. And I feel like it has to start with the tough conversations. And I believe that people aren't willing to have tough conversations. If somebody is a Democrat and somebody's a Republican, it's like, I don't even want to talk to you. I just want to argue with you. Rather than having the ability to converse, rather than having the ability to say, even though we disagree, I'd love to hear your heart. That's not a thing we do because we see Democrat. It's like on Facebook, I have to argue with you. I have to get my point across. I'm going to repeat statistics and repeat everything I just learned on this podcast, everything I just learned in this meme, everything I just learned in this book. And it's like, fam, that's a person you're dealing with on the other end of that screen. You know what I'm saying? I feel like it has to start with the conversation. What if you're unaware of the problem? Okay. So what if you're unaware of the problem? So you came up and you, you spoke um, about the history. So we all know the history because we all had history class, right? But then some of it, like even me, like three years ago, like three years ago, you would ask me about racism, um, like racism. I would have told you it doesn't exist. 
Like, I was really under the impression of I had never experienced it. I hadn't seen it. And so I'm like, well, why do we keep bringing this up? Like, we're never going to get anywhere if this is what we bring. What happened in the last three years? Exactly. I was, I was, I was going to ask, what Where'd you grow up your and perspective and how – you answer your question. What changed your perspective on why you believe it is a thing now? The person I dated. Immersion. Right. Consistency. Having an experience with somebody who actually had to deal with it. <laughs> No, no, no. I was just. It's been. Deep breath. Just, yeah, I just. We've been talking for an hour and 48 minutes. So Indeed. Hey, this is the longest podcast we've had. <laughs> Nick got to go home. We got, I'm dying over here. Indeed. My bad. All right, yeah. So, I, but I would say it literally just takes having an experience with somebody on the other end and being willing to endure with that. And saying, all right, bet, even though we may disagree, even though we may argue, even though it's conflict. What I can foundationally put this on is I love you. And on that I love you, I'm willing to bear all things, endure all things, and be there with you in the midst of our disagreements. You know what I'm saying? Can, can, we, can we just all agree that white people had it worse during COVID? Talk to me. What do you mean yes. by that? Wait, I wait, wait. wait. I, I, I got I to hear this. I gotta, what do you mean we had it worse? You had it worse. <laughs> we had it worse during COVID because – you know, the number one thing that happened when it got COVID is you lost your taste uh-huh. and our food didn't taste like anything to begin with. So we didn't know. <laughs> I think that's a good closing point, Phil. <laughs> they make Lowry's. Another Tony episode Satchers. of Black Man Do Talk. You feel me? And Nick. And, and Nick. Nick. <laughs> hey. Make sure y'all go cop them good entrepreneurs. And get that joint five stars. It does matter. And Nick. Black Black. Black and Nick. Featuring Nick. Exactly. Featuring Nick. Y'all be good.